On today's episode, I am blessed to be joined by the one and only Sam Franklin, co-founder and CEO of Otter. What happened? How did you find out? What was going through your mind? We were one of them. We had plenty of money with them. I think it was about 5pm that we'd heard um, from SVB, UK, CEO, things are good. And then I actually went to bed on Friday, decent time. And when I woke up, I'd seen that 11pm, the Bank of England had said, we've made the bank insolvent. If you care about your career, you should take things into your own destiny and you should be always aware. With 10 days, there are so many moments of maybe inefficiencies. Delete your diaries, rebuild them. From a very early moment, we said, let's go strong on brand. I think I would have gone back really said to myself. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. On this podcast, we talk to an amazing range of people. We talk to these people about risk. Risk they've taken in their lives, risk they've taken in their careers, when they paid off and when they didn't. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Nice to be here. So Sam, as we were just discussing before, I'm going to be incredibly selfish during this podcast and get the answers to all the questions that I have about what makes a great workplace and really just things that you're seeing within trends within the workplace. And I think one of the things that uh, I've seen get a load of traction that you've spoken about um, quite extensively is the four-day working week or your version, the nine-day working fortnight. Um, to some people, that feels like that could be a massive risk, you know, putting out there. Obviously, some people are going to love it, but there are maybe trade-offs from an efficiency or output perspective. Blow this open for us, you know, how did you come to it and what have you seen? Great place to start. Um, we were in a really interesting position at the end of last year where we were asking ourselves, how do we continue to make Otter a great place for great people? And a lot of what we asked our employees was, um, what could we do more for you? And they came back and said, we want more time off. Um, and at first we thought, okay, is that more holiday? Um, and then at the same time, we were also asking ourselves, um, in a period of high inflation, um, 10% last year, will we be able to stay at that level and give people 10% pay rises. Um, most companies said no. I think the average in the private sector was 6%. Um, and we did roughly the average as well. Um, but at the same time, we were saying, is there a way of, of maybe killing two birds with one stone here and giving people what they want, which is more time, and maybe giving them a non-monetary benefit that wouldn't cost us any money? Um, and at the same time, we were reading a lot about the UK day work week trial mm -hmm. and i'd hired a people director who's fantastic who's saying i've been following this for a few years it's getting traction um you know, could it be on the cards and so hard to remember the moment where it started to become an idea but someone has said what if we did something interesting like a four-day work week um, and i was pretty quick to shut that down mm -hmm. because i felt like and i had always felt like four-day work week is quite severe it's 20 percent reduction in your working hours it can be terrifying right yeah and for a fast growth startup that puts pressure on me as a leader to go speak to our investors and future investors and the board it puts pressure on the employees and it just felt like it was too much even though we started to see um other companies speak very positively about it but the nine day fortnight mm. losing 10 percent, so one day off every 10 days felt really interesting because yeah. it was a stepping stone um which didn't feel as daunting and I felt like there was enough evidence that could say it would be everything we wanted it to be, which is people will love their free time mm -hmm. back. They will have higher fulfillment outside of work, hopefully higher fulfillment in work, higher engagement, higher loyalty, but might also do the, the holy grail of also increasing productivity, increasing business outcomes. And so 
we debated, we discussed, and it became a point of why wouldn't we try this? Um, we're a business that does a lot of experiments with mm -hmm. our product. And so we made a decision to say, let's trial this because what's the worst thing that can happen? And I think because it was a nine day fortnight that allowed us to do that, I think a four day work week, we would have found much harder to make that bet. Yes. And so now we're in a position where we've been doing it since the end of Jan. Uh, so far, so good. I love it. Um, I think our employees love it. Are you applying it to yourself as well? Absolutely. It, it, wow. it was the biggest thing that people said to us amongst employees, leadership team, are you going to be doing it too mm. as founders? And the answer was, if you're not doing it, you know, I think this is going to set the wrong tone, set the wrong precedent. And so I was thinking, yeah, of course I want to do it. And part, yeah. partly this is a really interesting social experiment for me as a, as a founder. Um, and so we're currently too early to see if we've got the same business outcomes. But when I look at early stats on people giving responses on how engaged they are at Otter, how much more likely they are to recommend a friend to work here, mm -hmm. do they feel like they're less stressed? All the signals are pretty good. So I'm pretty excited. That's fascinating. Really, really interesting. Okay, a few questions jumped to mind immediately. Was there ever a fear of rolling something out which some people might love but isn't working and then having to, to wind that back and the impact of that? Has that been a consideration? It, it was a consideration, although I feel like if we had that level of concern, we wouldn't have done the trial. So we mm. went into the trial with quite high conviction that this really could work. Because when you look at the face of it, um, with 10 days, there are so many moments of maybe inefficiencies where I could almost feel that if we said to people, delete your diaries, rebuild mm. them, really think deeply about building diary management for building relationships, making decisions, um, you could kind of see that we were getting maybe a little bit inefficient. Um, and so I had good level of confidence that this wasn't going to be a complete failure. Mm -hmm. The things that we have considered and we still are considering are the more um, nuanced things such as can everyone take the same day off? Because right. will that allow us to continue to serve our customers well? Um, do we need to give people the flexibility to choose which day they have off? Because that might be um, more suited for parents and so on and so forth. Um, currently, we say to everyone, you must take every other Friday off the whole company. Mm. Those are the things that we are exploring. And I felt like those weren't so big, such that if half the employees come back to me next week and say, we did our first fortnight, um, I really felt like we lost uh, the ability to care for customers on the Friday we were off. We need to change. That feels like the, the realm of we will change that and, mm -hmm. and it will be fine. Um, and I didn't really expect anyone to say, I want to do 10 days. Yeah. Um, the thing I've been saying quite a lot recently is no one, when they hit 21 and started their career, said, oh, I'm, you know, I think I might do anything but a, a five day week for the rest yeah. of my life. Like, uh, and so for me, it's been it feels quite a joy to be able to say to our employees, a day back every two weeks it's amazing um, and i know i don't want to be super heroic in that um but it is a difference in in, I, in what you can do with your life and it should be ex super exciting I, I think it's incredible and it's it's genuinely something that when i saw it i was like first of all wow because i've not seen anyone else do that so i think it's truly truly innovative in that way but also it feels realistic because to me as an employer we, we you know our team is about half your size 35 full-time about 10 15 part-time I look at the four-day week and I'm like, it's just not feasible. It's just not yeah. going to happen, uh, especially because then it becomes the three-and-a-half-day week. You know, it just it, things just go, go in that way. So that's really, really interesting. So two more questions come to mind. One is, did you roll this out to the whole company or was this something that you started and is that something which you would always think about when rolling out a benefit of this type? Is it for everyone or would you ever, you know, A-B test it in a way? So we felt like this had to be rolled out across full-time staff. Otherwise... It would breed resentment, it would breed confusion, and ultimately we wouldn't get a good read on does it work or not. Um, and we did debate this. Should we have a couple of teams where we trial this with first? Um, but I think the size of business we were at and the speed at which we like to learn, we made 
a decision to say, let's just do it. Let's just try it um, and know that if things aren't going well, we'll course correct, um, mm-hmm. which I kind of wanted to A-B test. I, I kind of wanted to have that control group where I could say, hey, for this group of people, we gave them a day off, but this group we didn't. But then also there's that element of, is that fair? Yeah, <laughs> is yeah. That, is that fair to give this engineer a day off every two weeks and not this one? Um, is it right to play A-B experiments with people's lives? Mm. Um, and so we didn't. That's a that's a whole uh, other fascinating ethical conversation about playing uh, AB God with people's lives and something which you know as tech entrepreneurs we we possibly do you know we possibly do yeah. I think especially for uh, both of our our types of businesses Otter this is people's lives um, connected this is people's businesses right and when we do AB test these things that's that's a, a really interesting one to to get into but uh, another question before we do is you mentioned obviously applying this to yourselves as founders. And what does that teach us about practicing what you preach and making sure that you really are applying these things? Because I know that I've uh, been guilty of this. We have uh, connect days where anyone in the business can take off a day, almost a circuit breaker. It's, Mm. you know, never uh, something to do with annual leave. It's like, I just need a day to myself. No questions asked. You know, we get it. Sometimes you just need a day to yourself. Now, I've been guilty of taking one of these days, but then being on Slack the whole time. And I'm like, oh, this is a really, really bad signal. Like, this is not what I should be doing. So tell tell us about that. I think there's an element of uh, when you start a business, you hear a lot about, mostly from Americans, it's all about the hustle. And the only way you'll succeed is by working incredibly hard. Um, I subscribe to it. It takes hard work and grit to build Mm -hmm. a business but I don't subscribe to it. It needs to be your whole life. And so I think there was definitely an element of, I want to practice what I preach here. I want this for me as well. I don't want to be a person who cannot question or, and even I think about losing a day of work. Like that just feels a bit of a sad thing. Like if I can manage that for my employees, but I can't manage it for myself, what does that say about the type of role I'm doing? Mm. Um, And so we were really clear, like we had to practice what we preached, um, but we wanted to. Um, And so I don't know if it's uh, if it was too much of an internal debate. And we did look quite a lot at myself and my two co-founders' workload. Um, and I think one of the things that helped us make a decision is that there are three of us mm. and we are um, equal in, in the way we really bring ourselves to the business. And I think having that spread has been really beneficial because if I was a sole founder, I'm not sure I would have um, felt that mm. easy to say yes to this. Um, and therefore, if I was... As you say, on the days off that you should be off on Slack and messaging people, what tone that would have set? I'm not sure it would have been a good one. Yes. Um, and certainly us doing it well and us also reevaluating our time, reevaluating our diaries, reevaluating how we operate at work, I think has mm. set a really good tone for the rest of the business. Like if we can make it happen, hopefully you can too. Um, and one of the things I always try and do as a leader is um, be calm, show calmness, not put too much pressure on the organization because then it really does trickle down. Yeah. And so... By that nature, if I've not figured it out, my employees aren't going to figure it out. So mm. I think that's something that we've we've tried to really think deeply about. That's fascinating. And your co-founders, are they first-time founders? They're experienced founders? What's, what's the, the setup between you guys? We're all first-time founders. Um, we worked in startups before. Mm-hmm. So we, we know what it's like to be in these types of businesses. Um, but this is our first radio. Um, yeah. So uh, everything is new. That's incredible. I mean... First off, just say massive well done then on, on going this far, regardless of where it goes from here. Thank you. You know, although it's always about where it goes from here. But, you know, regardless of that, uh, so incredible to see the, the the journey that you guys have been on. And uh, as I was saying to you before we started, 
I've used the product multiple times to great effect. I think it's incredible. The look and feel is amazing. Um, and I've been fascinated by your use of out-of-home advertising, the tube advertising, for example. You know, I always see Otter on there. Um, tell us about that journey. How did you come to that? At what point did you start, decide to start pulling the trigger on that type of advertising? How do you track the ROI for that sort of thing? Okay, lots of questions. Maybe maybe <laughs> ask me a few of the follow-ups. Um so we're building... I told you the ADHD brain. I'll just dump them all, right? It's great. I love it. Um, we're building the better way to find a job in tech. And one of the, the opportunities we saw with Otter was, let's go build a job pl- product that's candidate first, that really puts the job seeker at the heart of what we're building. Um, some products would just say this is being user-centric, but I think in the space we were building in, a lot of entrepreneurs had built for the company side, um, all about filling a vacancy. And so given that, I felt quite strongly that this had to be a consumer brand, and it couldn't just be your boring... Um, corporate blue although it's not just all about visuals linkedin indeed um so from a very early moment we said let's go strong on brand um because we think this is going to be a big differentiator for us both in terms of attracting job seekers then also telling the companies this is what we stand for and why we're different because we were never going to be as big as as linkedin and um, indeed early on we, we aren't there's so many more job seekers there but the people we do have stand for something uh, we call them the all-ins the people who really mm-hmm. care about their career the people who want something more who are willing to give more to get more type of thing um so uh it was i think about six months into our journey after having pre-seed funding that i pulled the trigger on let's go work with one of the best branding agencies in london who'd done some amazing work with clients and spend 10 to 15 percent of our cash which our investors were saying that's a lot of money like our seed stage businesses are spending this much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the conviction along with Theo and Zav that it would really make a difference and that it would set us on a really strong path to get customers, get candidates, get fundraising. And uh, we worked with a great un- uh, branding agency called Ragged Edge. They really helped us try and peel away what are we trying to do here? Mm. How can we be different? What makes us different, not just better? Um, and then how do we make that into an incredible visual identity? Um, and yellow was one of the things that as soon as they put that idea in front of us, we loved because yeah. it just felt so different. Mm. Um, and a few of the previous ideas weren't as exciting. When we saw this one, we were like, this is exciting. So was that it? You saw it and you're like, that's the one. Absolutely. And it's, it's the first time I've done a brand project like this before where you're really trying to create something from scratch and you just know when something doesn't quite feel right. It's like, this, oh, this feels more like a sports brand or this mm. feels more like an education product. It's like, this feels different. This feels bold. This feels distinctive. Um, and so ever since then, we've just been building on that, that, that ability and that desire to be different. Um, and none of us are marketers of the three founders. I think it's been a little bit of a, uh, an entrepreneurial journey to define what different looks like in the space, to mm-hmm. learn what it takes to build a very different brand. Um, I've done a lot of reading. I've spoken to a lot of chief marketing officers in my time, um, either B2B businesses, because I think you learn a lot from that side and yes. then also consumer products. And also marketplaces, because with marketplaces, you have to think quite deeply. Um, and really, the uh, kind of outdoor advertising and the above-the-line advertising that we do is twofold. One is um, job-seeking has a moment in time which is really, really um, buzzy. Mm-hmm. So it's January, February time where people say, new year, new me, new job. There's a lot of psychology that's around why this happens. Mm. And so ad- ad- advertising outdoor is really good in that moment because you're reaching a lot of people with a lightning bolt moment that really says we're here to play um and so that was part of why we did it but the other part of why we've done outdoor advertising is we think it's a really strong way of cutting through in a business that's quite hard to cut through there are a lot of job products linkedin is on your phone 
and most people use it despite mm. the fact that it's not a great product and so what are the ways that you can really stand out as a product that means something that has something to say and our advertising is probably punched above its weight and um, we've put messages out into the world which are quite bold um, about salary transparency about um, issues at the workplace and those types of things and those things get noticed and those things build probably more loyalty than um, a simple ad on, on an Instagram um, account we'd still do that it's great for mm-hmm gaining acquisition but we really did like the, uh, the above the line and, and outdoor advertising to um tell our story so to your last point about roi and then yeah. i will pause because i'm sure you've got some follow-ups uh, i've got um, a million things i would ask you off the back of that <laughs> roi is incredibly hard when you're doing outdoor yeah it's incredibly hard when you're doing brand building and yes. um, because the advertising basically should pay off over a long time it shouldn't be a moment of where well, we did some advertising in january and we saw acquisition because your goal isn't that your goal mm. is building brand saliency, brand awareness. Um, And so I've had the ability um, to be able to say to our investors, uh, we want to do this for a long-term bet. Like the investments I made in Jan 2021 are still paying off. Um, And that's not always easy because some investors want to see money and pay back now. But we've had a supportive group of investors who also agree that Mm. um, brand is important. Yes, Uh, And so I like to look at ROI over quite a long period. And it's blurry because did that ROI help reduce our performance marketing spend? Did it increase our organic growth? Did it increase retentions? It's very, very hard. Mm. Um, and so you look at a lot of leading indicators, you look at a lot of different things like brand awareness surveys, unaided, aided, to try and understand did this thing make a difference? Um, I think one thing I found quite interesting is we've done three campaigns now, January 2021, 22, 23. And this time, for the first time, we had way more people who would message, would say something on LinkedIn, who would post, who would share, who would comment things like, this is really hitting a nerve in terms mm. of you you speak to me. And I think having that, um, it's anecdotal, but useful information was really helpful to say, well, this is getting noticed. Yes. Um, and so we still haven't seen the ROI yet from our January campaign. It's too yeah. soon. Um, but so far, so good, I'd say. Fascinating. No, that's that's a, a brilliant response. Two things that really spring to mind. I'm going to put a pin in one, Tinderf- Tinderification. Of the job market, I'm going to put that. I don't love Tinder for jobs. Yeah, no, 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 not not that, not that <laughs> part actually, not that part. But we'll go back to that. It, how much of this was design? How much of this was luck and timing? Because I feel, uh, going back to your point about making this a consumer centric brand, a consumer obsessed product rather than a company obsessed one, that timing unbelievable because you've got COVID that comes through the door, which I'm assuming you guys didn't have prior knowledge about, but you've got COVID that comes through the door and literally flips the market on its head in terms of like, right, Mm. um, uh, not customer, sorry, um, candidates are going to be dictating how they want to do things. And the market flipped and you guys were just the perfect product to service that zeitgeist change of that feeling in the market. I mean, you, you, you couldn't believe it. I'm I'm smiling because you're using words that we use, which is like the zeitgeist (laughs) and flipping. Um, We had an insight 2019, which was we can see that people want more from their job. So we need to give them more from their job search. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time, that was uh, more about mission and values. Um, And then obviously the pandemic happened and that became flexibility. But also in 2020, we had things like climate crises, COP25 Mm -hmm. or whatever the number was at the time was incredibly on people's minds. And so suddenly things like companies' approach to climate was was on the mind. We then had um, George Floyd, where Black Lives Matter took a bigger stage than it ever had before. And so timing was good. Um, but also I think we were at a point in time, and that's why we had the insight, um, which was 
there are these things that are just happening along the world that are going to keep coming that yes. will mean that people's view and relationship with their workplace will change. Um, I think the, the lucky thing, the, definitely the lucky moment of it was because the pandemic was so big um, and so severe and so intense, um, there was a quick there was a quick change in, in people's ability and desire for a product like ours. But it really just accelerated trends that you were already seeing. It wasn't actually necessarily a massive change in direction. It was just a, a, an acceleration. Yeah, and we were, we, were, we were really thankful that we built a product in August 2019 that was ready to go in the moment of COVID because people were made laid, uh, were made furlough, they were laid off, um, they needed jobs. And so we were there for them. Um, but it was a really interesting moment because many companies weren't hiring as much either. Yes. And so to build a product at that moment, which was job seeker first, candidate first, that really put their needs uh, at the forefront was great because we could be be there for them and build for them. Um, but I, I do reflect on it. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of timing that, that was really positive because if we started the business six months later, we might not have even got pre-seed funding. Mm. And we might have been that business where Employ you know, investors were like, employees aren't hiring right now. Like we don't want to, we don't want to be involved. Um, and then of course, um, the tech market took an absolute growth spurt in 2021, 2022. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. Um, and so the the dynamic shifted again, where suddenly companies were trying to hire so much, so fast, um, and the market was so competitive. And that was a really interesting moment in time as well. But I think there's probably the the, the story with recruitment is it goes through these na these narrative arcs and, and ups and downs. Um, and COVID was an up, and uh, so was the 2022 moment was an up. And then the last six to nine months has been a moment of employers slowing down, um, mm. feeling like recessions on the horizon, um, the market for funding has changed, and therefore mm. they're reducing it. Really, really fascinating. Okay, I'm going to go back to the, the Tinder point and not that Otto is Tinder for jobs because that wasn't actually what I was thinking at all. But I think it's more of a, um, you know, a real communal, well, a societal shift on the way that we perceive opportunity in the grass being greener. Mm. And I, I relate it back to Tinder because, you know, anecdotally, so many people, it's like, I can't settle in a relationship because it's like, what else is out there? Mm. And although that might be a very depressing thing when it comes to personal relationships, I think that's a really brilliant thing in the jobs market that even people who aren't looking might be on Otter because they're always sort of semi-looking, right? Because we have this now this idea that the options are endless. There's always potentially something better around the corner. And I think it taps into that that total shift of consciousness that we've all had. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, really interesting to bring this up because when we started the business, one of the biggest things we heard from people who were the non-supporters, so those who were skeptical. The haters. The haters. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> call them haters. Was the best people don't look for jobs. I heard that so many times. And it always felt like a slightly strange comment to me because if you care about your career, you should take things into your own destiny and you should be always aware and or not always, but often aware of what kind of opportunities might be great for you. Um, and so we really wanted to prove them wrong and build a product that was so good that people would come back even when they're not, look, not looking. Yeah. Um, and I like where you're coming at from, from Tinder, which is people are never happy. Mm. But um, I think it might be slightly different with jobs, which is probably more of a... Um, what else? Uh, what else can I do to develop myself? Because yeah. it's, with a partner, hopefully you've only got one, and then um, when that doesn't work, you find another. And it's similar with a job. Um, but I think with with jobs, it's, it's it's definitely something where you can be very very happy in your job, and you should still be looking. Because mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the case with, with yeah, relationships. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think as an employer from my perspective, like one of the things that we are proudest of at Connected is a 96% staff retention rate. Amazing. You know, uh, people don't leave Connected. And the two people who left, one went to Amazon, one went to Warner Brothers, and they both asked for their jobs back. So it's like, yeah. Uh, so we're, we love that side of it. And for me as an employer, 
uh, I am so excited by that never-ending challenge of retention. You know, that should be a good thing of being like, yeah, yeah, what can we do to keep on improving, to keep our people here? Because we know that the way that we empower them, of course people are going to come knocking. They're always going to have an eye on what else because we, we have that, uh, facilitate that culture of, yeah, you know, let, let's let's be the best at what we can do, um, which, is, which is really, really interesting. So one question I have for you on company culture is I don't think company culture is necessarily perks listed at the bottom of uh, a job spec it is the reality of empowerment understanding career progression how do you how does Otter help companies distill that part of culture which can't just be you know free fruit on a, on a Wednesday whatever it might be how do you guys approach that part of culture and, and getting that distilled into messaging on the platform I think it starts with this question of does an, does a company know what its culture is do they know what their um employer value proposition is EVP because if they don't it's a very different conversation it's more about how do you help that company figure it out how do they look deeply into their identity and how they started and how do their employees currently think about themselves to define it um, once that is done which most companies to be fair um, at the stage we work with them on utter have and know it's then a case of what do we need to to say because culture is so multifaceted it's got a huge surface area and lots of different knobs and little interesting bits which are the bits that job seekers most want to know and that's where we try and add the most value mm. because we know that job seekers like x but not y or they're really interested right now in flexibility options and they really do care about um career progression and what types of pro products they're building um so we have a, a customer success team with the companies we work closely with and, and they have these types of discussions around where we think these are the types of things that you probably should be writing and talking about um and as you say it's not just perks and benefits mm. although those things do matter i was um, gonna ask i was gonna ask you surely you've seen the 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 weird the wonderful the good and the bad of of perks talk us through some of them i don't know if i've seen any weird ones i oh, really no, okay. I'm, I'm going through my brain and thinking i think i think everything feels quite quite normal okay um, that's good we've got the wonderful i should have more faith in humanity then clearly. yeah <laughs> I, I think i think there's, there's some weird things written in job descriptions about what you need to do and what you must have but in terms of the perks i think most companies have done quite interesting things um and um i think probably the the, the ones that that are even standing out i'm just going through my head and they're like they're not that interesting it's like mm. you, you get your birthday off like it's mm. not it's not super innovative it's not super um left field it's just a, a nice thing to give to employees yeah um, i think probably the thing that i feel quite strongly about when it comes to perks and benefits is that for some people they make a big difference mm. so how good is your parental leave is it universal do you offer men women same-sex couples exactly the same um, do you have a very, very strong approach to flexibility because some people cannot come to the office every day? Like those are things that I think there has been, to your word, zeitgeist earlier, a bit of a zeitgeist change to, oh, but talking about these things isn't actually culture. And I think it's starting to move back and say, no, these are the things that matter. We're going for a cost of living crisis, making sure that people have great pensions. Um, some of the more financial things are important. Um, and and I've, I've found it quite interesting where, I've seen some uh, people on LinkedIn and so on often joke about this benefit of having a, a free lunch in the office is not mm. a benefit. But actually, like, that is money that you're paying for someone. Mm. Um, and as a company, it's actually a very smart way to do it because it's not as, um, it's more tax efficient. And so if you if you pay for lunch every day, um, that is a benefit. That's something that you could and should maybe be proud of to shout about. Now, the difference is if you're then a company that doesn't pay well and yeah. is a terrible working environment, it doesn't make it 
stand out. Yes, free fruit will not undo a toxic culture, but it adds to a positive yeah. one. And, and and free fruit, maybe I'm not so excited about. Like free yeah. lunch, for example, sure. you, know, you go to Level Lane Market and it costs like eight, nine pounds. Um, yeah. So it, the, 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 the world of what your brand is as a company is so nuanced and it's f- about finding those things that you really want to shout about and, and, and shouting about them. Because I think one of the things that early stage employees, uh, early stage employers, sorry, um, miss mm. is that it's a sales pitch. Like you were competing against so many different companies. You know, I think it's good that you've got a healthy level of, I need to retain my team because it's pushing you um, to, to think, how can I make my place a great place to work? And, and obviously companies know they have to get great talent, but they then don't pull through yes. and they're not selling. And it's like your job description, your company looks bland and people aren't going to come to you. And it's, it's bizarre because, you know, we could talk about entrepreneurship and we would know we have to go find ways to get customers. Mm. We can't just expect them to come. Like if we build a, a great product, they're not just going to appear. And yet sometimes companies believe that that's what's going to happen when it comes to finding totally job seekers. Totally. That, that's what I always say to young founders and, and founders that I've invested in as well is one of the greatest, um, pieces of evidence that an early stage founder can do when trying to raise investment, for example, is demonstrate the level of quality of talent they've been able to attract to the project early on. Because if you can't pitch top talent and attract top talent, you're not going to be able to do the customers and the investors and everything else. it's, It's totally part of that entrepreneurial stack is how do you build an attractive company for the top talent to want to come there, stay there, be excited. And, you know, ultimately it can't just be about money, especially for startups. You cannot just constantly throw down greater and greater financial incentives. There has to be more to it than that. Mm -hmm. What are some of the best examples that you've seen beyond financial incentives or perks that that have uh, made a big difference for businesses trying to recruit and attract uh, and retain talent? I think talking a lot about... um how someone might progress and how someone might develop is a really big part of what people care about. Uh, And so um, this is quite uh, functional, but in a job description, instead of writing all about what we want, um, talk about what that person should get excited by, what types of things they might be doing in three months, six months, 12 months. That's quite a simple thing, but I think the detail it shows when you're able to put that out and lay it out says a lot about the employer. It shows a lot about they're thinking longer term about this role. They're thinking about how this company will support this person to grow and develop and that you're not just uh, a cog in a machine. So I think that's that's one area that I think I've seen people stand out with. And then the second area is the sort of operating principles or things we care about, um, values, and that can be anything from um, this is the way we approach work, which is... Uh, transparency by default or we have a very very strong culture of psychological safety and this is why and this is what we care about anything that has an edge anything that makes you go oh that's interesting um i think that's the other bucket that i've seen companies do really well on and i think what's interesting for us at least with a product that we're trying to build early on that stuff is really hard to codify Mm. i don't know about your business but certainly for the first 25 people at otter we were doing a lot of stuff that became culture yes and we were somewhat deliberate but it wasn't like I could tell you exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever someone used to interview, I did an interview when I was hiring a lot in the early stages and someone said, what's the culture like? I was like, you've got to ask me more than more than that because it's too broad a question. Like, give me something more specific. Like, what do you care about? And I think that's one of the challenges for businesses of smaller size is that identifying what they're really, really strong at and what those things can be in that bucket, like the way they work, the way they operate, the way the CEO talks and yes. you know, brings others in. It's really tough because almost you need your employees to tell you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I always think, and I always say this to my team, uh, everything we do has to be a mix of, you know, belief and being vocal and also undeniable proof. Mm-hmm. So when people say, what's our culture? I say, well, we had this specific situation with employee X who 
you know, wasn't happy with this and this is what we did. So it's, yes, I can champion all these things. I can tell you about our values, but I also want to have an undeniable stack of proof that I can point to and say, that's an example of where our culture has come into play because it is so hard to actually do the vocalization piece without being able to point to it. Yeah, I like that. And this is why retention is super important because those people that were there when you made those moments and either good or bad can can use those as, as shared stories and shared yes. moments. Oh, do you remember when this happened? And, and they can be incredibly defining. Um, and when you lose those people, they, they mm. those memories somewhat go because it's not as strong to be able to say, oh, yeah, when we did this thing, none of you were here. Yes. Um, and I've, I found that a little bit recently with building a leadership team where we've hired leaders and they weren't the first employees. And um, I've, I've wanted to say a few topics like, oh, do you remember how we communicated this during the pandemic? And obviously they weren't here. Um, and so yeah, I've even found that very recently that having those abilities to point to something and know that someone will go, yeah, I remember that mm. is really important for your kind of undeniable troops. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned founder led uh, hiring. When does that switch happen? When did it happen for you guys? What do you see in the market? Because I think it, for the first 25, you said it's so important to make sure that I, I think anyway, that the founder is involved with that. But what's your view in it? What do you see? So we are a company that still has founders interview at the last round. So no one will get an offer unless they've met one of the founders. And I expect we'll do that for quite a while because there are three of us, which really helps. Mm -hmm. And we know that's a good way to keep our hiring managers in check, to sell great candidates at the end, and also be sure that we're still sticking very strongly to our values. Um, I believe that companies probably above 200 people might change that. Mm -hmm. And it's for more senior people, does a founder get involved? Mm -hmm. um, in terms of actually running a hiring process or being incredibly involved in a hiring process, I was probably involved with the first 50 people quite deeply. I would do phone screens, I would do technical interviews, I would do um, workshops, etc. Um, and for me, that's because one of the biggest things you can do as a founder in terms of building leverage in your business is hire mm. a absolute superstar. Um, and that's one of the things that you should be really worried about is if I'm not bringing great talent, is this going to be a successful business? And so it was the thing I loved spending time on. Um, and <clears throat> you get really good at it because you do it for really really intense period but the thing that i always get a little bit paranoid about is i've not done i've not done interviewing for a while mm. and we haven't been hiring an officer for a while we've we've kind of got a good sized team and so when you have to get back at, at an action how quick is how's it how, how quick am i going to get off the blocks um and so it's a skill you've got to go build and so i always think for, for founders don't don't leave it too long between doing interviews um or, or hiring or, or taking on a, a role yourself because it's a very, very good way of diagnosing how good are you really as an organization at still spotting great talent? Because um, I think the thing that I'm always paranoid about, and this isn't necessarily because of the people I've hired at Otto, I think it's just always there, is but what are the people that I've hired going to do when they go hire? Mm. Um, will they still hire the people that are really, really strong for the role? And the hope is they will. Um, I've always had this, this mental model, which is if you hire A players, A players will hire A players. But if you hire B players, they're going to go hire C players. Um, and so you've got to stay close. That's you've got, brilliant. You've got, to under, you've got to understand, like, when you scale your business past a certain point, are you still hiring the, the mm. best people? So one question I have for you, and again, this is something which um, I'm being totally selfish on and just picking your brain, but I've had situations, um, not necessarily actually in Connected, but with the real sport, my previous business, where wanting to empower my C-suite to make hires. And in a last round interview, when you, know, you come in as a founder, where your C-suite, your CMO, whoever it might be, has total conviction about this hire and you're like, it's not the person. 
it's not the person. How do you balance that between totally, you know, undermining someone who's trying to build their own team with that founder gut? And speaking to you, it sounds like gut plays a big part of, of, of how you've done things. Yeah, I think the way I describe hiring is it's an art and a science. And so you can really... <laughs> I use that the whole time, art and science, love that. You can really lean on the science. You can be like, show me everyone else, show me the scores and so on. Um, but there is a level of gut. And that's the art, that's the judgment. Um, it's a tough one because I think in, in that CMO scenario, for example, I think you've got the, the one angle, which is, is this a mistake that they need to make? Is this a mistake mm-hmm. that they need to make in our organisation to learn and therefore be better for the future? Um, and the way I'd be thinking about that is um, how long have they been here? How big is their team? How senior is this person? How critical is this person they're hiring? And if you know they're not feeling like they're super critical, I might say, yeah, go make the hire. Let's see what, what happens. Um, one of my favorite mantras with hiring is if you have no mistakes, you're not hiring with enough risk. Mm-hmm. If you hire 100 people and 100 of them feel right, you probably haven't taken enough risk with, the, with those people that might have got something slightly different to them um, and will maybe be your superstars. Uh, so that's one angle that I'd be thinking about. And then the other angle with the um, uh, with the kind of using your own gut is, um, does it matter? Um, and, and something that I feel like you have to do a lot as a founder is uh, ask yourself, at what points do I need to use my chips in the bank to ruffle some feathers? Mm. Because you want to pick the right moments because you don't have any credits. And so is this the moment that you want to pull? If your CMO is saying, I think this is the best person, you've hired them for a reason. They're a CMO. They've got more experience than you as a founder, typically. Um, And so I think there's that moment to be like, oh, is this one of the moments that I'm going to ruffle their feathers? Because that will change your relationship in the next thing they bring up. And that next thing might be a really important marketing marketing strategy where you don't have a clue, but they're slightly doubting themselves and they may not push the the boat out far enough in terms of the risk they're taking. And so... um, it's a long game having an employee and having a leadership team. And so thinking really deeply about what that one moment will do, I think is, um, yeah, how I'd attack that. Fascinating. I, I've, I've so loved this conversation. By the way. I, I feel like we're getting into the real psychology of building businesses, yeah. which is amazing. Uh, one thing that would be, you know, um, be a real mistake not to ask you about it because we've seen uh, off the back of the amazing growth spurt of 2021, a lot of businesses unfortunately have to make redundancies, lots of cuts. How can a business come back from that, from psychological safety, from presenting itself as a good home? For, because I imagine there'll be lots of businesses now going through this reality. I think the phrase I've always loved is manage expectations and be really transparent. And so presumably presumably, when you make redundancies, you say to your team you're keeping, I believe in this team. We can make amazing things happen. You are fantastic people. Let's go make magic happen. Um, and that has to be with a very authentic um, voice and you have to be very transparent about why you've made the decisions you've made why you're in this position what this means for company finances um, and set expectations about what type of business that you're now building um, and uh, most businesses the expectation is not drastically different mm-hmm. but there were some companies that raised an incredible amount of money 2021 um, were hiring like machines and hiring so many and they had to take a really big handbrake because mm. that was just not um, you know, you're not going to work in the future and so for those businesses managing expectations of this is what it's going to be like to work here um, it's not going to be sexy we're not going to be throwing money at everything we're going to have to build a business that's focused on profitability and you know economics like I think whatever the topic is being really clear with your employees I think is is what wins you that trust and then that trust is what enables you to do great things and then be in a position where you can say we're growing we need to start expanding we need to go higher again um, I don't think I've got any uh magic pieces of advice other than that and, and ty- typ- typically i think managing expectations across any part of a relationship with employees and leaders and and um, certainly prospective candidates typically works very well yeah fantastic keyword you use there is transparency and one of the things that i love about uh, sorry, that i love from uh, what i've seen of you 
online just how much transparency you have in terms of building in public whether it was the the nine day um fortnight and and all the other topics that you speak very very candidly on how have you seen businesses handle that transparency when things aren't going as well and because you know i've seen a lot of founders who very good at building in public on the way up slightly more difficult when when things are a bit rocky what's your experience been with that so i don't think i've taken the kind of default i'm going to just monthly update build in public um i know some founders do that and when you committed to that then it feels very weird when they disappear because presumably that's a hard moment um my, my building in public has been very deliberate because we as a company otter want to encourage other companies to do great things to help them hire great people and so for example really shouting from the rooftops about the nine day fortnight is me trying to play a part in changing the ecosystem um, and helping other companies see that it's possible and this is why we've done it uh, and when I made my first post on it, I had so many people say, how do I how do I make this happen in my business? Which was really exciting. Um, but I think in terms of uh, the moments of negativity and, and what you do in, in, in those those spaces, um, it is kind of stick to your same tune of being transparent and sharing and acknowledging that businesses are there to go up and there to go down. Um, and I think one of the things that we felt very clearly on when we started a business, my, my co-founders, it's only a small probability that succeed. And being really real with that as a reality, I think is um, valuable because when you do get to a moment that's not so good, I think it then feels more normal to talk about it not being so good mm. because um, uh, there's only very few companies that always grow, that always keep going up and to the right. Um, and it would be uh, very, very rare to be one of those. And so it's the reality that you're, you're not in some moments. And I think that makes it feel a little bit normal and a little less scary. Mm. Um, the thing I don't love about this building and public culture right now is where it feels like everything has to be told. Everything has to be a story. The negative moments, the positive moments. I think it's, for me, still about storytelling. And so internally, when I talk about transparency, we don't have the um, the 100% transparency that I think some of the businesses in London have tried to shout about, which is everything is public, emails are public, you know, we default to public, because I'm still very conscious that transparency is sometimes damaging mm -hmm. sometimes you have to withdraw information to tell them later sometimes you have to sequence things smartly sometimes you have to stage things um and i think it's our role as entrepreneurs to do that work and sometimes to bottle things in for a little while to then tell people um and so i think that's somewhat similar with building in public um and that's why i've not taken the decision to literally tell the world everything we do um i like to tell things that we've selected because mm -hmm. that's part of my my storytelling that's brilliant. It's a uh, really, really amazing advice, Sam. Thank you. Okay, I've got five questions that I ask every Great. single guest. Not quick fire or anything, but but I'm really excited to hear your responses. So question number one, Sam, what is the biggest risk that you've taken and what happened? I was thinking, I was thinking about this one. Maybe this is one you hear from most entrepreneurs, but it's it's got to be starting my, my business um, because there's a point in time where you say, what would have happened otherwise if I didn't start a company? And I was on a great trajectory, getting more roles, more senior roles, able to go work at interesting places. And I could have had a strong, stable career of being an operator. Um, and so the risk here was trying to do something completely different to have hopefully all the things that I wanted in terms of building, building great businesses, people, culture, product. Um, but it might be uh, an opportunity cost that I've lost some time and lost some um, lost some of my life and also lost a little bit of energy because there's a really big risk, I think, when you start a business that you don't get many shots mm. and um, you can't leave that quickly, uh, certainly if it's starting to go well. And so I knew back then, like, there was a, le a level of risk to say, you know, I've got to be able to commit to this for a certain number of years. Um, and so that's definitely 
the biggest risk I, I think I've taken. Certainly when you think about the decision-making process and the things I had to go evaluate, the people I had to speak to to get confident about the idea and the thing that this was right for me, the books that I read. Um, but then also just if you look at it probabilistically, like mm. I'm, a, I'm an economist, I think quite deeply about this type of things, like the likelihood of success in this space, so small. And the fact that you'll go years without making a salary to start with and then years of making um, hard nights and lots of work for something that's still so minuscule in, t- in terms of probability, by far the biggest risk. Mm. Um, and then where we are today, we're a Series A business um, with 70 people full-time, 30 people part-time, um, with a hell of a lot of users, um, but there's still a lot of the journey to go. Um, so the risk is still playing out. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, I feel very good about it because we've we sort of reached that moment where I won't regret Otter now. Yes. I think there was a period where maybe a year and a half, two years, if things then plateaued or got worse, I might have gone, okay, maybe the risk didn't pay off. But mm-hmm. now I've learned so much. I've gained a lot of skills. I've had so much fun building it. We've made a lot of impact. Um, it's now feeling like the risk is de-risked. Yes. Um, but in terms of like uttermost success, like the risk is still there to play for. Like there's still a lot that we need to go do and it's still really, really low probability. I think that's a, a really important message for all founders to hear, especially when you've raised such a great Series A and, and have so much respect and, and great feeling towards the company uh, from you know, the, the UK tech, tech ecosystem and, and beyond, I'm sure, that actually that that big piece of venture funding is very much the start of the journey. And that's where the pressure really comes on, right? And it's a whole new level of risk and higher stakes. And, you know, the more money you take, the more, you know, the better the return's got to be. And, and I think it's a really important message to everyone to understand that that Series A funding is such an amazing uh, recognition of, of the growth and the potential and the brand and everything else, but it's still very much the start of the journey. I think a lot of founders think once you raise that big first venture round, it's like, a oh, right we've done it it's like no, no no that's that's the start yeah and absolutely the the pressure um is is there uh, even if it's not from your investors the pressure is there because you then have to go make the, the best of that that capital um and you don't get far by taking small risks so um within building a business there's lots of risks when you're doing it in terms of what products you build what markets you launch like if you're not taking risks then you're not really going to do what you what you set out to do, which is build a, a defining product. Um, so yeah, it really amps up when you when you take that amount of cash. Amazing. And what are you proudest of? I think I'm proudest of the relationship I have with my co-founders because we're the set of three that I feel like I could work them work with them for a lifetime. Um, whether that's on Otter, whether that's building another business one day and being a serial entrepreneur, um, it, it's the kind of working relationship where these are the best people I've worked with and I love working with them. Um, And I'm proud of it because that's been a long road. Um, I've known one of my co-founders, Theo, for over 10 years. Nice. Um, And I think it's a relationship where many people don't have something like that. Many people in the world will have a partner. Many people in the world will have siblings, Mm -hmm. um, will have parents, will have friends. But I'm very proud that I have two co-founders, business partners, where I get really excited. Yeah. um, And we'll be always excited to step in a room and problem solve with them um which was interesting at the weekend with uh, silicon valley bank we banked with them um, i was going to ask if because surely uh, you saw a lot of businesses but i didn't realize that that you guys were impacted as well yeah we were one of them we had plenty of money with them and so uh, jumping into a room with them on a problem um makes something like that more joyous and less um feeling like the world is, is getting to a bad place. So yeah, that's that's what I'm most proud of. Okay, now that you've mentioned it, we've got to discuss it. How, what happened? How did you find out? What you know? What was going through your mind in so, that moment when you when you got that announcement from SVB? 
So I think it was interesting because the first announcement was US is starting to not look good. Share price had dropped. And then we were getting noise from SVB UK that it was a separate entity and things were going to be fine. Um, and I think it was about 5 p.m. that we'd heard um, from SVB UK CEO, things are good. And then I actually went to bed on Friday, decent time. And when I woke up, I'd seen that 11 p.m. the Bank of England had said, we've made the bank insolvent. And also this very ominous line, which is, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was read, but something like, this bank is not systemically important enough for us to save. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean I've literally lost all of the money? Or will that mean I get X percent back? Um, And so... At that point in time, it was, a okay, what does this mean and what do we know? We were very lucky in that we have investors who, um, so investors like Local Globe, uh, who were very close to government and therefore we felt like we were getting quite early signal of what was happening and how seriously seriously this this was being taken. Um, And so that gave us a lot of confidence over the weekend. Um, But there was a point on on Saturday where we chatted as founders, we talked about how bad this could be and what we might have to do on Monday morning, that I'd said and the other guys agreed, like, we just got to wait until the end of the weekend. Like, this is so out of our control. We know there's going to be a long list of things to do on Monday if it does not look good. But for now, rest up, because we need to be at our best on Monday morning if there are serious decisions to be made based on do we have cash? Will we ever get the cash back? And so on. Um, so I, I think I was quite pleased in that it didn't become an incredible roller coaster because we just said, look, the right people are on this. Let's wait until Sunday evening. It ended up coming Monday morning um, with the news that HSBC had, had purchased the bank. Um, so weird one of those moments where you just thought, how is, how is this happening? And I'm, I'm in it. I'm living it. Like, I, I love reading these books about um, Theranos and Wirecard yep. and all these scandals. And suddenly, and this isn't a scandal, but like a, a black swan event. Like, sure. We're in it this time. It felt quite strange. Wow. Wow. And I think this is uh, an amazing example of why stoicism as a founder is so important. Because the your weekend, having that mindset of let's wait and see versus the panic stations from your mental health and your own stability and everything else you you had a totally different weekend yeah and it's been interesting because i've i've spoken to a few journalists over the last 24 hours i've tried to turn um crisis into opportunity and i've been quoted a few times of uh you know saturday morning sam franklin was in emergency mode <laughs> and um I, I might have said something along those lines but the person i was with on saturday texted me um basically saying like you were pretty chilled. <laughs> like we, had a, we had a really nice coffee on Saturday. Um, and, and I think that was partly because uh, my view on a lot of things with business building is it's not your whole life. Um, when you're not thinking about your business, you've got to be present with other people. But then also to your point about stoicism and feeling a bit zen, um, it's out of our control. We've done the best th- thing we could with the, 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 mo- the moments we had available, which was Friday to move some cash out. Um, now we've got to wait. Um, and I've got to conserve my energy to be ready for a moment where I might have to make quite good decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think luckily with, with something like Otter, we'd gone through some moments of highs and lows where we built that muscle um, in terms of what do you do with a pandemic? What do you do when this happens, this happens? Um, such that when this happened at the weekend, we were not ready for it because no one ever is, but we were prepared a little bit more than we would have been. Amazing. Okay. Is there anything that you would have done differently on this journey? For Otter specifically? Whatever it means to you, Sam. Life's journey. Life's Um, journey, Otter. I think I would have gone back and really said to myself um, when we launched in the US, does this need to happen yet? Um, It's been a really interesting journey launching a product in the United States. Much bigger market um, and also something that we knew would be a big challenge and actually helped us raise our Series A because we had some traction there and I think that was part of the story. 
I think I would have said to myself, just keep on evaluating it a little bit more because there's upsides to staying in the UK, it's a decent sized market, develop product, and then think internationally. Um, not that I've regretted launching in the US. We have more people there looking for jobs than we do mm -hmm. here. Um, we're well known here in terms of the size of the market. Our ecosystem dominance is bigger here. Um, but yeah, I think I would have told myself, you know, does this need to be now? Okay, fascinating. Really, really interesting. All right, second to last one. What does it take to be successful? This one's a tricky one. I don't know if I've distilled it down yet, so I'm, I'm going to ponder it for a second. I've, I've really liked it when I've heard people talk about three elements of success, where it's will, skill, and luck. And so I think the starting point is you have to appreciate that being successful is partly luck. Um, if you don't, I think you're kidding yourself that you're not really appreciating that you have to create luck um, and that sometimes things are down to chance and we might have exactly the same path as someone else for a while, but they'll have a lucky sp spin and something will change. I think that's really important for one's mental health and also understanding the, the way the world works. Um, and then will and skill, I'm a big believer in that they're both required. Um, I'm certainly not one who believes that you're born an entrepreneur and you have the skills and you just got to keep developing skills and reading books and going on training courses. Like you have to have some level of will. But I think the probably the the thing that I would would say to combine all these things, you have to know when is it a moment for will and when is it a moment for skill. When is it a moment to think really thoughtfully, really deeply, talk to so many people that you can to build skill. Um, normally, those are kind of big moments of irreversible decisions, like deciding what business do you go build. Mm. But then, when does will just become the thing that you really need to go push? Um, we've got the idea, we've got the vision. I need to go hire 50 people because we just raised a lot of money. That's taking a lot of will. You have to work hard to find people. You have to hustle, you have to grit. Um, so yeah, maybe this is a different uh, angle on it. People talk about having skill, will and grit, but I think it's knowing when when is skill and when is will the moment to really push because it's hard to hard to push everything at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to the art and science point, right? You know, when does the data need to dictate and when does the gut and the heart and the, you know, total self-belief need to dictate? And it's a, it's a fascinating one. But if you can, you know, pull on the right strings at the right time, you're in, you're in a good spot. Absolutely. All right, Sam, my last one for you is 16-year-old Sam walks in the room right now. What are you going to tell him? Oh, this is interesting. So I've, I wondered whether it was, what do I tell them to change change his life? Or do I just tell them in terms of... It could be next week's lottery numbers if you wanted to be. It could, this this is totally open-ended. It feels like an utter scam. I love it. It's the biggest heist. Um, I think I would probably tell myself back then, um, don't get as caught up in academia as you did. So my little history of, of how I've ended up being an entrepreneur, and tell me if this answer is too long, by the way. Um, I built things when I was younger. I fell into online gaming where there was a bit of a hacking community, learned how to program, made some money doing it. Which games? Out of um, there was an online game called Neopets. That was quite... Ah, was I remember Neopets. Pretty, yeah. young, pretty young at the time. So made some bots and, and things that made me near points. Then I would sell those near points. <laughs> wow, that um, was a blast from the past. I remember that. There was also a game called um, Maple Story, which was very different, more 3D that you could hack again and made some points there and sold those. Um, and, you know, these are slightly legit things, but um, I'm, I'm too old now. I'm not going to get caught by that. Statue of limitations passed, yeah. yeah. It's, it's gone. Um, and that really taught me to build things and program. Um, and then I also started to consult, so to speak. Like I would charge $25 an hour on this website that was sort of the precursor to Fiverr and Upwork. And um, I was CEO of Sam Designs. 
Um, and I would basically do anything and everything from changing websites to building WordPress, WordPress plugins. Um, and then there became a point where someone said to me, you're really smart. You should think about going to Oxbridge. And I think that really caught me. And all of a sudden I was really deep in academics and working hard and studying. And I'd lost that builder mm. um, aspect. And so from the ages of 17 to 21, I didn't code. I didn't program. I didn't build much. I did things that felt like they were building. Like I ran um, uh, a big ball at my university. Like mm -hmm. I started a conference between um, a couple of universities and on finance topics. Like there were things I did, but they were never to the level of like hacking, like yeah. building. Like that's how most people in the Valley would talk about it, like coding and things like that. Um, and whilst it helped me then get a job at McKinsey mm -hmm. as my first job, like super corporate, like I didn't, I didn't love it. And I knew pretty quickly that that wasn't the right path for me and I needed to get back onto being something like a builder. Um, and then I started the search to join a startup and then wanted to eventually start one. Um, so I think probably I'd go tell myself maybe there was a, a couple of years where you could have just done some more building. And I don't know what it would have meant for me today. I would have maybe not gone to a, a corporate job and I would have lost those skills because those have been incredibly valuable. I don't regret my time there, but I'd love to know what I would have done differently. If someone had said to me like, yeah, go to a, go to go to university, but, but spend more time like at the entrepreneurship club or spend more time like still building your things on the side. Mm. Um, because I, I think I, I, I knew probably deep down that that was what I preferred, but I was good at, I was good at studying. Like I was smart. And, and when, when something's put in front of you that you can go achieve, it's sometimes really tempting. Mm. Um, and I, uh, well, I'll say one more thing and I'll pause. Like I remember I, I went traveling between university and my first job mm -hmm. and, um, it was one of those great moments where they said you can start in September or you can start the next year in April. So it was like additional seven, eight months. Um, so I went traveling and I think there was a really nice moment where I got off the treadmill. A lot of my other friends started work straight out of university. And so they were gaining skills, they were making money, they were doing projects. And whilst I obviously did great things traveling, it just felt like I was off the treadmill. And I think that really allowed me to go, whoa, that last few years was a, was a run that you just had to keep on doing. But now I need to start really evaluating, like, what do I want? And what do I care about? And I got there, like I, I, even before I started McKinsey, nearly didn't start and because mm. I didn't really think it was the right thing for me. I enjoyed reading more about um, uh, Jessica Livingston, the founder of Y Combinator, written an amazing book. And I'd read all that in an evening and thought, wow, this is amazing. Um, and all those things were more excited than reading the the reading list that McKinsey sent sure. me um, about how to be a really good thought partner um, and how to tell a great story. Um, so I got there because then I didn't stay at McKinsey very long. I was the first person to leave in my cohort. Yeah, I wonder what I would have done differently if someone had said, don't run into academia, it's not going to be the best thing for you because um, maybe I would have done something differently. It's a, an amazing answer, Sam, and thank you so much for sharing that as well. And I think it's it's one of the things which um, I see as a, a real consistent theme, and this is going to sound a little bit, you know, airy-fairy, whatever, but between people who have spent a bit of time traveling is, you know, when you grow up in a Western society, especially the UK, let's say, you know, you get presented a choice, a select choice of narratives that you can follow. You can go and do this, you can go and be this, but they're pretty much following a, a, a you know, a well-trodden path. And for a lot of people who go through the university system, it's going into a corporate career. But when you go and, and travel and you see, oh, actually, hold on, there's a whole host of narratives that I can pick. I can go and live on a bar, at a beach and work in a bar. Actually, these are all mm. just choices. And I wonder how much of that 
gets distilled into utter of giving people the understanding that you know what you might be stuck here or, or here right now but there is a whole world of narratives and opportunities and l- lifestyles and work styles that you can go and choose and uh yeah i think it's uh, uh it, it really is reflected in in what you've built i think you said it better than i could um <laughs> you, uh, you've got a great way of explaining it and yeah we, we we talk about helping people find fulfillment and i think part part of having a conviction around this business was myself figuring out for myself what what that meant Amazing, Sam. Anything you want to plug? Not really. I'm, I'm not a very, uh, not a very pluggy person. And um, this has been fantastic. Um, obviously, go try Otter if you feel like you want to have a career in tech. Um, we we'd like to think we're a better place to find a job in tech. Um, so give that a go. Um, but otherwise, really nice to chat to you, Sam. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you.